0: This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors.
1: How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? I'm Greg Dalton, and this is Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. Our topic today is how technology can ease the three-year drought that is gripping California and the western United States. Despite recent rains, California's reservoirs and snowpack remain dangerously low. Mandatory water rationing is expected in many parts of the state this summer. But the reality is most homes and businesses have very little information about their water consumption complicated bill arise every couple of months in a format that may or may not be intelligible to average people. Water entrepreneurs are seeking to change that, but they face an uphill battle. Our culture expects water used to be nearly free and easy. But climate-driven severe weather is going to make water stress an even bigger part of the California dream than it has been in the past. Can technology save us? What role does human psychology play? Over the next hour, we will look at water innovation on this program, which is underwritten by the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Pisces Foundation. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us the CEOs of three startup water companies. Steve Hartmeyer is CEO of M.Oasis, a company working on water efficiency in agriculture. Tamin Peckett is CEO of Banyan Water, which helps institutions manage their water resources. And Peter Yolis is CEO of WaterSmart, a startup helping water agencies provide more information to their customers. Please welcome them to Climate One. Peter Yelis, let's begin with you. You've been in the water business a very long time. Tell us how you came to your current role. Sure. So I've devoted my career to sustainable water
2: management. I grew up here in California and actually lived through several droughts uh, growing up. Uh, My first uh, work in the water field was actually working on what was called the Miller-Bradley legislation that became the Central Valley Project Improvement Act, and what it did was elevate environmental protection equal to other consumptive uses. Uh, I went on to work on river restoration with the Nature Conservancy, financed water projects, and even did water rights trading uh, between agriculture and cities. Water Smart Software, my current company, is really devoted to the same topic of sustainable water management by educating urban residential customers and commercial customers around how they use water, how they compare to their neighbors, Uh, and the best ways for them to save water in a very personalized way.
1: And we'll get into more of that uh, later. Tam and Peckett, how did you come from Wall Street to to currently where you are now? Well, in the early 2000s, I
0: was working for Goldman Sachs in the energy sector, and I had a friend who left Goldman to go help GE buy up water businesses. And I remember asking him, what is a water business? Because I had never thought beyond turning on the tap and getting water out of it. Um, And when I learned that at the time it was a multi-hundred-billion-dollar industry, and it felt like it was a ripe opportunity with uh, a lot less um, new human capital entering to solve the problems that existed. I became passionate about it since then. I've worked as a venture capitalist in the sector. I started an organization called Imagine H2O, which helps new innovation reach the market, and most recently, Banyan Water.
1: Thank you. Steve Hartmeyer, tell us about how you came to uh, your current position, uh, working on putting little sponges into the soil (laughs) for
3: crops. Well, I, I actually grew up in California and my first experience with water was when my mother was telling me in the mid-70s to take the second rinse out of the washing machine to save her a Meyer lemon tree in the backyard because you couldn't water anything on your lawns and turf. Uh, I, I joined MOASIS really because they had a technology to address the global need, which was water. And I became really interested in it because it was technology that could allow you to reduce water consumption dramatically without impacting yields and many times increasing it. And I think since water is a finite resource globally, it's something that we're going to have to manage if we're going to feed the world as it approaches 10 billion people.
1: And we'll get to that. Uh, but let's put this current drought in context. A lot of people reference the 1977-78 drought. I certainly remember those days growing up in in Monterey. Uh, Tam and Peckett, is this going to be as bad as 77? Is, do we know yet?
0: Uh, I certainly don't know, and I don't know that anyone knows. I think that what we do know is that... Um, over the past couple of decades, the pressures on our water system have increased so that when we face an acute event like a drought or, alternatively, an acute event like a heavy series of rains that causes more water to enter into our storm and sewer systems, we don't have the same level of excess capacity to deal with that as we used to. We just have more people, higher energy costs, higher infrastructure breakage, um, and so we essentially need a new wave of innovation to address those problems.
1: Peter Yolis, the population of California is about double what it was during the 77 drought. Uh, Have we doubled our water capacity? You know, the economy has grown, the population has grown since the last time California had a really serious drought.
2: Right. We actually have become much more efficient since the last drought, especially since 1977. In fact, we're now in an era of peak water, which means that we've actually, in in the early 1980s, we used more water then than we do today. So there's less water available for our human uses. And so what we've done is actually separate our human productivity from our water use. In fact, our gross domestic product in California has doubled while um, our water use has stayed flat or even declined. And how have we done that? We've become much more efficient in many of the ways we use water today. So our Water productivity has increased. We can generate more economic value from the same amount of water. And even in our homes, we've used and implemented many more water-efficient appliances and devices. So our demand, in a sense, is hardened. We don't have the cushion we do. We can't conserve our way quite as much as we used to. So we have to look for more and more uh, technological advances and behavioral advances to become more water-efficient and
1: maintain
2: our existing lifestyle and way of life.
1: So it's a very positive story. California is using water more smartly, but most people still have very little information about the water they use, where it goes, they get a bill. Maybe you look at it, maybe it's in English, maybe it's not. Uh, Why is there so little information, Peter Yolis, around water when it's so important, but there's so little information wrapped around it?
2: Well, we can only manage what we measure. And in large extent, we haven't done a very good job of measuring how much water we use and for what purposes. So, for example, uh, we're just now implementing Uh, smart meters that just uh, vary at the very beginning stages, whereas in electricity we've seen much more uh, greater deployment of technology. Water is lagging behind by 10 or 20 years. So that's one piece is measuring or the sensors we use to measure water.
1: Why is it lagging so far behind? One
2: reason is that water is uh, cheaper, and so there's less reason for us to be measuring that water. The other piece of it is the rate structure. How do we pay for water? So for many places in the United States, we pay a flat rate or a uniform rate, which means that uh, we pay the same amount in the first gallon we use as the last gallon, or in some cases we pay the same amount no matter how much we use. That's now changing. We're actually implementing what we call conservation rates or otherwise known as tiered rates, where the more you use, the more you pay. And I think that makes a lot more sense for the era that we live in today with our um, in
1: drought and reduced water availability. Ken and Peckett, should people pay more money for water?
0: Well, Water pricing is a complicated and pretty hot political topic. I think that um, what what most people would agree on is that we can improve the structures by which we charge for water and sewer services, so that people are provided with their basic needs in an affordable way, whereas their discretionary and excessive use is priced according to how they how they value it. Overall, if you look at um, studies of what a median affordable percentage of household income would be. Um, most studies suggest that would be somewhere between 2 and 2.5%, and, and we're far less than that, so there's certainly room to increase water and sewer rates.
1: So is that saying that there could be a baseline budget for, I think Irvine may be one place that's, that's doing this, a baseline saying each house gets this amount of water. Of course, in Moraine, you got to include the hot tubs and everything else. It might be different in different parts of this, the state. but uh, it, And then... Pricing goes up from there. Is that what, where you think we might be going?
0: I, I do think that is a growing trend, as is tiered pricing for excessive rates. Um, we serve customers in cities all over the country, and in some places, there are actually declining block rate structures, so that they have to pay. The utilities have to pay for their fixed costs, and once they do, the more you use, the cheaper it gets. So there's a lot of room for improvement.
1: So are pools in Palm Springs excessive, or are those just lifestyle? You fly into some of the places in very arid parts of the state, you see backyard pools all over. Is that something that's that's sustainable, Damon? Well, I think
0: um, whether you're talking about pools or outdoor landscape watering, all discretionary uses in drought-stricken environments are coming under some pressure. And I think that the lesson that we've learned is that um, you can't have discretionary water at such a cheap price. And so most cities have actually been increasing rate structures for what they would consider to be discretionary use, and that that train has left the station. I think that's going to continue.
1: This is California. Hot tubs and pools are not discretionary. They're part of our lifestyle. I think, come on, this is why people moved here. Uh, Steve Hartmeyer, should farmers pay more for water? I think farmers are paying more for water now. More than they want to, but still not
3: as much as some people think they should. You know, it's it's a complicated issue when you look at agriculture and farmers and water because some of it goes back 100 years to water rights and why you developed it. And the reality is in California, it's the fifth largest ag economy. Most of it's in a desert, and we're growing crops that need water that are grown in a desert. So the question really comes in. Will a grower pay more for water? They're paying more now than they have before. Some of them are paying high market rates, which is improving efficiency. But the question is long-term, is what is a sustainable value for that water as it passes through from a grower to a consumer? And what will they pay? Then what would the consumer be willing to pay if a grower's inputs costs go up? But I think eventually growers will end up paying more for water because it is a fixed commodity, and eventually they will have to address the market needs.
1: One thing that's happening in electricity is people pay more certain times of day. Should we right. pay more for water in a drought? I mean, a lot of other things, think of all the other commodities that are trading. Tam and Peckett, you were at Goldman Sachs, right? I mean, maybe that's where some of this investment is thinking, that there ought to be you know, some reflection between supply and demand, and that might change depending on water situations.
0: I think that is happening. Um, the key to making that happen is, as Peter mentioned, being able to measure what you're using and when so that you can accurately charge for it.
1: Okay. In terms of capital flows into the water sector, why does so little uh, – well, first of all, let me ask, how much money, tenant and Peck, goes into the water industry compared to energy and other areas of innovation?
0: Well, what's interesting, and I think this highlights how good of an opportunity it is for innovation, is water is actually a huge industry. It's over $600 billion a year in goods and services purchased in the water industry, and yet it's That's in the less uni- than, United States. That's globally. Okay. Okay. Um, but it's only $200 million worth of venture investing every year. so
1: It's a drop in the bucket.
0: It's a drop in the bucket. Last year, there was over $29 billion of venture and angel investment and $200 million in the water sector. Um, So I do think that we've been building the capacity for more investment and sort of greasing the wheels so that we will find – Um, better entrepreneurs, uh, more sophisticated investors, and capital will start flowing into the sector more than it has but it's still a small percentage of investment.
1: And that capital flow is going to happen because people see profit potential. They see something that's increasingly scarce, rising prices, better profit margins. Is that part of the picture? I think
0: that is part of the picture. I think that um, also what's happened in the water industry is that large industrial conglomerates have decided that the value of water will be appreciated more in the future and is currently a large business. They've bought up mid-sized companies. And now there's a dearth of mid-sized acquisition targets for those hungry acquirers, which gives small startup companies who are able to grow a good chance of achieving a good return for their investors.
1: Peter um uh, is government support going to yeah. be necessary for innovation in, in water like it has been in uh, alternative energy? Solar or other energies have had a, a helping hand from the government to get them off the ground. Is that true for water innovation also?
2: It isn't needed, but it's certainly helpful. And we've seen that uh, Water Smart was actually started um, with venture investment. We had most of our contracts today with, um, with the you know, 15 cities around the country we have uh, without a helping hand. However, there is some support uh, coming through both the state of California and potentially through the federal government. Uh, the state of California uh, supports investment in water programs through the Department of Water Resources, has an integrated regional water management program, which the state is using to funnel funds uh, to communities who are thinking about how to integrate water management, both surface water and groundwater and wastewater Um, all together. I think that's the right approach for us, and I think that there's a big opportunity for the state and federal governments to support innovative new technologies in water management today. I think that's where the big opportunities lie, and I think that the government really uh, sees that, Today and is thinking about how to incorporate um, new technologies and thinking about what
1: can Silicon Valley do to address the drought. Tim and Pickett, does the government need to give a helping hand to the water industry to get it more innovative and efficient, or will the market take care of it?
0: Well, I think you can see that it's possible to build good businesses in the water sector without a helping hand, but contrasting water to energy, water companies have had
1: next to no help. We have a U.S. Department of Energy. We don't have a U.S. Right. Department of Water funneling funds.
0: There's a very fragmented set of policy decision-making and an inconsistent way of supporting new technology in the water sector, and the absolute number of dollars is paltry compared to energy.
1: Peter Yoles, let's talk about the, the psychology and behavioral uh, science piece of this in terms of what actually motivates individuals to conserve water. It's not uh, Mother Nature or saving a few pennies. W- what is it?
2: It really is about providing a social framework or a social context in which to think about how people use water in their daily lives. So we've done a lot of research, and the the research literature tells us that only 1 out of 10 people will change their behavior to save money. Only 1 out of 10 people will change their behavior to save the environment, but 8 out of 10 will do so because of what's happening around them, and they see other people doing the same thing, and they want to follow that. So we're creating, for the first time, a social framework to think about how each home uses water in an individualized way by comparing their water use to other homes with similar attributes, like the same number of people and the same yard size, and comparing apples to apples. And that really motivates people to say, gosh, I'm using a lot more than my
1: neighbors. What can I do to save water? So does a bill say, you're a pig, you're a water pig? I mean, what, what does it say on there? Just says, uh, you, you're you're an outlier compared to your more virtuous neighbors?
2: Yes, we're actually giving people a water score with a smiley face or a not-so-smiley face, uh, <laughs> color-coding them and providing them with a bar chart that which compares their actual water use in the most recent billing period in gallons per day, a unit that people understand, gallons, compared to the average of homes like them and compared to efficient homes. So what they'll see is, gosh, they, my, my line is longer than the other you know, lines of my neighbors, and what can I do And we actually provide them with personalized ways to save water, the best ways to save water at their house at that time of year. And that's really motivating.
1: And what's the scale of this? How many companies, how many individuals, how much water savings have been realized so far yet? Yeah, you're a young company. Well, WaterSmart
2: Software just completed a uh, independent evaluation and pilot study with the East Bay Municipal Utility District. It was funded by the California Water Foundation. And the evaluation was conducted by independent researchers. It found that, on average, homes that received our Home Water Reports saved 5% of their water use across the first year. They were also twice as likely to participate in the water conservation programs promoted by East Bay MUD. Um, And they were twice as likely to rate their utility as excellent at providing ways to save money and water at home. So it was really a win-win for the utility and for the customers. And how many uh, locations are you involved in so far? Currently about fifteen cities in California, Colorado, Texas, and Utah.
1: Tam and Peckett, you do this for institutional customers, big factories, businesses that, that that save water. What are you finding there in terms of water savings?
0: Uh Positive trends on two fronts. First of all, those customers are very much profit-motivated, and um, we're able to show a fast payback and a good return from saving water. They also are starting to value water not just in the absolute bill savings but in how it affects their assets. Uh, One of the biggest value propositions to better water management is protecting property because if you've ever had a water leak in your home or an overflowing toilet, you know how much of a hassle that is and how expensive it is to repair. So our smart system is able to detect and shut off leaks, which is a significant value proposition to customers. In terms of overall water savings, you can generate savings from information, and you can also generate savings from using smart control networks to actually automate intelligently using data how and when water is used. In doing that, we've saved over 50% of the initial benchmark water that we control and over half a billion gallons of water last year.
1: Steve Hartmeyer, most of the water use in California is for agricultural purposes. Uh, You're making little sponges that go in the soil. Tell us what you're doing and how it's helping, uh, potentially helping save
3: water. Sure. What we do is we make a great description of a sponge that is put in the soil, and, and when excess water is put in or water is put in, it absorbs that excess water and stores it, to when the plant needs it as the soil is drying out. So you reduce the stress on a plant, and by reducing the stress on a plant, it's promoting more growth rather than looking for water, which results in a healthier plant and higher yields. So the amount of product or crop you're getting per unit of water is increased. And what's the sponge made of? It's a polymer. It's a proprietary polymer that was designed as a new technology, the next version of what many of you saw many years ago, which was the product is in a diaper. And what this was designed is to make it more environmentally sustainable in farming operations and be able to last longer and be more efficient. So if you looked at soil, six inches of soil weighs about 2 million pounds, and we put 20 pounds of the product per acre for 2 million pounds of soil. So it's very efficient in the way it works. Is
1: it petroleum-based? Yes. And – What are the health and environmental impacts of putting that petroleum-based product so close to a food supply?
3: Well, anytime you want to put something into an agricultural commodity, you have to get regulatory approval. So we submitted it to EPA, and they looked at it and said, we don't have any regulatory concerns about it as far as doing testing about residue studies, which they require on conventional pesticides. And then we have to register it with the local ag authorities. So we actually went to California Department of Food and Ag, submitted the product, submitted the breakdown structure of it. And they looked at it, and they registered for use sale in California and in Arizona, and we submitted it for registration in Mexico.
1: Is uh, I think I read about another company that's using soy-based products or something similar. Is that an option to use something that's not oil-based but soy-based?
3: I think what we're trying to do is get the most efficient product that's out there. So if it's if it turns out it's a soy-based product that is efficient and and works as well, it'd be something we'd look at. Uh, we're not concerned right now with the environmental characteristics, it's more the performance characteristics of it that says the product will work in a sustainable manner uh, and perform higher yields for crops with less water.
1: We're talking about water stress and aqua technology at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Steve Hartmeyer, CEO of M Oasis, Taman Peckett, CEO of Banyan Water, and Peter Yolis, CEO of Water Smart. I'd like to ask you how California is as an environment for starting and growing a water startup business. California is often thought of being not so business friendly, uh, or at least people might start businesses here but grow them elsewhere. Peter Yolis, is this California a good place to start a water business?
2: I think it's an excellent place to start a water business, and there are really three reasons why. First is we have an excellent venture investment network here in the Bay Area, particularly who are interested in funding clean tech, water, energy startups like Water Smart Software. Second is we have incubators, uh, the best case being Imagine H2O, uh, which helped WaterSmart get its start. They run a, an excellent competitive uh, business competition just for water companies. WaterSmart was a winner of their inaugural competition, and it was of immense help to WaterSmart, both um, for credibility and to grow it. Uh, and the third is we have willing partners, So uh, both from government agencies and for water utilities who are willing to take a risk on new technologies and to pilot and experiment with new technologies. So all three of those are reasons why California is an excellent place to start a water
1: business. Tennant Peckett, you're also chairman of of Imagine H2O. What are the obstacles to fast-growing water businesses in California? What are some of the speed bumps? I think the first
0: one is there's a pervasive lack of awareness of how good the opportunity is. If you ask the average person, they don't know that water is a big business. They don't know that they could be commercially successful while also doing some good. Um, And I think that extends to their roles in investment and partnering and everything else that you need to get a business off the ground. So one of the obstacles is just showcasing how good of an opportunity this is. I think the second big obstacle is helping innovation get to market. Water customers, by and large, have been risk averse. There's a lot at stake if you don't manage water properly. Um, and as a result have been slow to buy. And overcoming the challenge of getting an innovation into customers' hands and getting it proven so that they talk to each other and it becomes broadly adopted has been one of the biggest challenges, and that's what Imagine H2O really set out to do is to provide a conduit to market for innovation.
1: So, water as big business might make some people nervous. General Electric, Goldman Sachs getting into water might make people concerned about privatization. You know, the profit motive putting upward pressure on on water prices, uh, which is necessary for life. So, what would you say about the concern about privatization, Tam and Peckett?
0: Well, some of the large companies in water are not actually privatizing water, in in, in the sense of. The systems that we depend on as residential water customers, they are serving predominantly large industrial users for things like treating their water. On the other hand, many of the large, privatized, investor-owned utilities in the water space have been successful because they've been able to achieve efficiencies. And one of the reasons for that is that um, in the U.S., for example, there is a fairly limited number of investor-owned electric utilities, whereas every town sprouted their own municipal water system, and we have over 50,000 of them. It's illogical to think that all 50,000 of those are managed as well as they could be, Um, And so I think one of the alleviations to concerns around having private ownership and management of water systems is are there strong institutions to protect stakeholders who could be at risk if things go off the rails.
1: Let's talk about some cool technologies. What are some companies and technologies we may not have heard of in the water area that that you'd like to share? Uh, Steve Hartmeyer, anything that's crossed your radar in terms of other than than your own own company, uh, who's out there doing cool stuff in water?
3: I I think – in general, in water, what you're seeing is the, the software and hardware that you'd see monitoring some of the technologies these guys are doing moving into ag right now. So there's a lot of startups that are out there monitoring water, monitoring wells, monitoring the right time to pump. You, you had mentioned earlier about electrical rates. Most growers now try to use most electricity at night when it's cheaper. I mean, it's counterintuitive, but that's really when it's less expensive. And, and the same with water. And so, there's a lot of new technologies out there for monitoring water on a per acre basis. And so, I think what you see is software uh, moving into the agricultural space. Uh, and, and then, you, most recently, there was a, a number of acquisitions where you see where the data mining and the ability to, mo- to take data in agriculture and mine it for most efficient use. Uh, Climate Core is probably the best example where there is a large acquisition. And that's that's really a data management which will help growers really use water more efficiently.
1: I read about one called Water FX. They're using solar power to desalinate water, drainage water, that would, can no longer be put into the San Joaquin River, and they're desalinating that water using solar electricity, and they have a reverse osmosis plant next door. So that's clean energy, clean water, 10 and What are some other things that cool things happening in water technology?
0: If you're willing to look, there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. Um, the history of water and civilization is one of innovation. It's just that it's been local innovation, And it hasn't spread broadly to the market. And so just about anything that you dream up or think of as something that someone could innovate and come up with, if you look hard enough, you can find a company doing it. Bandon Water actually got started by buying one of those small technology companies and we've been out on the hunt for more, really in the IT space, as Steve mentioned. Um, I have the pleasure of seeing around 100 new water technology companies every year come through the Imagine H2O program and that has different programs every year around different needs in the water sector. And this year's is Water Innovation for Food and Ag. In that context, we've seen some really innovative companies gathering data in interesting ways to help manage water better in farms and in food processing contexts. And we've also seen a lot of innovation at taking waste and turning that into value-added byproduct, and agriculture in particular.
1: And there's one called Planet Labs that's doing some cool things. is that, mapping? Who knows about Planet Labs? Peter Yolis? Yeah, I'm familiar with it.
2: So I think that sensing, and particularly remote sensing, which means the use of satellites to gather imagery uh, of the Earth's surface, is really cool. And so Planet Labs is actually a new startup, um, and they're launching about 60 or 70 low-orbit satellites that actually will only be up for two or three years before they come back and burn up in the atmosphere. But they, during those two or three years, they actually take very um, precise imagery largely of environmental factors of of water, water, temperature, vegetation, all that information will then be sold to um, companies who are managing water and land and agriculture uh, to make them more efficient. So I think remote sensing and sensors in general are really going to be a growth area uh, in this industry.
1: We're talking about water technology at Climate One. A lot of California's water history has been finding new supply, developing new water. So is that era over, more dams drilling deeper, Most of the rivers are tapped out. Uh, Tam and Peckett, is developing new supply, is that over?
0: Uh, It can't be over because we're going to need more supply. So it's not over, but I think that what I hope will be increasingly recognized is that the cheapest source of new supply is efficiency. And we have made significant efficiency gains, as Peter mentioned earlier, but we're far from a water-efficient civilization in the agricultural or the urban context. And I think we see proof of that on a daily basis with our interactions with very sophisticated business users of water um, who have a long way to go and lots of savings to achieve. In addition to more efficient use as a source of supply, I think we're going to see increasing reuse and recycling of water as a source of supply, um, and more and more plants and systems set up to do that.
1: Gray water used to be illegal in some places. I think San Francisco and others have have done that away because there's health concerns about standing water and parasites, et cetera. Uh, so is gray water something that an average homeowner ought to think about, capturing their, you know, my grandparents had a cistern down in the basement. Uh, is that something we're going to see coming back, Peter Yolis? I do think it's going to come back. In fact, it's uh, becoming very popular in a lot of
2: places because, especially in a Mediterranean climate like here in California, gray water is much more efficient than, say, rainwater capture. Because here we are, rain does, usually doesn't come down from, uh, you know, April till October. So, but you are using water every day in your home, and that's the water that can be reused at your home through laundry, to landscape, or capturing of. Shower water and put, to be put into uh, your gardens, for example. Showers to flowers, laundry so, to landscape, okay. That's right. So I think it's a, it's a great way to sort of go off the grid in a way um, for water, just like you would
1: for solar in your home. So what does that mean, putting a big tank outside in the, or in the garage? Well, how does that work?
2: Uh, it works. There's a capture system, usually uh, in the crawl space of a home. They gather it, they do it. run through a filter, and then it gets spread out as the water is used uh, into your garden. So on your lawns or other shrubbery, and there can be a storage tank, but it's not very large. So it just goes out as you use water in your home.
1: And if you don't have an outside need for that water, if you live in an apartment in San Francisco, uh, can't get into the toilets probably without some serious plumbing. So you, you have to have some landscape needs to,
2: to do that. That's the best way to use gray water. I think we've seen some large buildings, including the Academy of Science here, use uh, rainwater capture. And then they, that water can be used for um, some indoor purposes.
1: What are some of the, the top ten tips, uh, Tam and Peckett, that people listening at home ought to do? Uh, check your toilets. What, what are some of the, the top ten top three tips uh, for water efficiency for homeowners?
0: Well, one tip would be look at your bill, uh, which I think a lot
1: of Let's people ask, don't How tip. many people understand their water bill? We'll just ask for you know, maybe a, th- a fifth of people in the audience th- say they understand their water bill. Okay.
0: And understanding your water bill is a pretty complicated task, uh, especially if you're a big business with a complicated water bill and lots of meters. But it's pretty hard for most homeowners if it hasn't been simplified for you. Um, And a lot of times you don't get a bill in a period of time that would enable you to understand what you could do differently. You get a, a bill 60 or 90 days in arrears. So the first thing would be look at your bill and understand it. The second would be most utilities really offer a lot of programs to help homeowners become water efficient. There is lots of free stuff out there if you go to your utility. So I would look into that. Um, And a third would be one of the largest sources of waste in the U.S. in cities is outdoor watering. The EPA estimates that 50% of water used in cities is used on landscapes, and about 50% of that is wasted. There are... Increasingly sophisticated control technologies that function like a nest thermostat to manage your outdoor water. We use those for clients uh, in the industrial and institutional context, and they work very well.
1: So that means they won't water your lawn. Hopefully, you don't have a lawn. But if you water your your landscaping when it's raining, things like that. Right. Peter, your tips for uh, home water efficiency.
2: Well, it turns out that one out of four homes at any time have a leak. So leak detection is really important. And so one of the things that WaterSmart is doing is implementing leak detection technology. So we, when we analyze historical water meter data, we can actually flag a home that may have a leak and communicate that to the homeowner or to the utility, who, which can then call, you know, call the homeowner themselves to help identify it. So we're helping empower homeowners or residents to identify leaks themselves, find out where that leak might be occurring, and put a stop to it. So that's really uh, one
1: of the great ways that we can uh, save water at home. I've talked to one expert recently who said that toilets can leak, uh, may not hear it. You think that if your toilet's leaking, you'll hear it. Toilets can leak uh, 1,000 gallons a day, and the way to test it is you put food coloring in the tank, and if the food coloring comes into the bowl, you know that you've got a leak, and you may not know it, but you could be losing a ton of water through, through a bad toilet.
2: You can have those continuous leaks like a toilet leak, or you can have... A leak in your irrigation system. You may never find it because oftentimes those irrigation lines are underground and you may not even see it. We found in the city of Sacramento where we work and they have smart meters. They're actually logging water use on an hourly basis. We actually found one leak of uh, 67 gallons per hour and we actually flagged it and messaged the homeowner who then discovered it and stopped it the next day.
1: What percentage of Californians have smart water meters?
2: It's less than 10% but it's growing quickly.
1: We're talking about water and technology at Climate One. Our guests are Peter Yola, CEO of Watersmart; Taman Peckett, CEO of Banyan Water; and Steve Hartmeyer, CEO of Moasis. I'm Greg Dalton. What are some of the Tam and Peckett? What are some of the model societies or cities that manage water really well? Is we, thinking globally? Who does it really well?
0: Well, not surprisingly, the regions which have experienced the most acute pain around water management have developed the most sophisticated mechanisms for dealing with it. You started to talk about Israel. I would mentioned Singapore and Australia as other examples. I would also mentioned the Netherlands in a different context, which is because of the geography there and, and the topology, they have serious flood issues. And we think about water here mostly in terms of how to deal with too little of it. Dealing with too much water is, as we've seen in places like New Orleans, an equally dire problem.
1: Let's talk about the California Emergency Drought Program in terms of recently California passed about 700 million dollars to address the drought. Steve Hartmeyer, is that money going to
3: good use? I think any time you address the fact that California has a drought, the money is going to go to good use. It's more of a longer term use than a near term use, I think, in in addressing long term issues related to California agriculture. So I think any time you focus on the fact that California isn't a drought You mentioned earlier about the supply issues. I think it'll be in a perpetual drought. Uh, There's just not going to be enough supply to address it. And so anytime you have a program that raises awareness about that, it will address it.
1: How about climate change? And and your clients, you're dealing with the agricultural sector. How do you think climate will affect future water stress?
3: I think there's no doubt that agriculture is looking at climate change and say, how do you position yourself longer term for climate change? Uh, And water is obviously one factor of that. In, in the Central Valley of California, it's growing in a desert right now, so they're they're figuring out how do you be more efficient with water. Tomato production in California, everybody has probably seen at some point the big trailers running up and down I-5 with tomatoes. In the last 10 years, they, for example, have gone from fur irrigation to all drip irrigation. Uh, and it's done two things really for them, and I think one they anticipated was they used a lot less water, but they've also had a large yield increase, which means if you need so many tons to supply the 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 needs of the canneries, you're going to need less acres and less waters to supply those tons because the water is being used more efficiently. The other thing I think what's happening globally is there's a lot of areas in the world, where you mentioned Australia, where they're already dealing with the drought. One close by here, which everybody in this room, you know, your, your winter vegetables basically come from Mexico. Well, Baja, Mexico has been in a drought ever since the Colorado River started to shut off. And and so they're probably further ahead than the U.S. in really looking at water management. There's tomato growers down there right now and strawberry growers where we get all our winter vegetables that already have desalinization plants. And they're looking at how do I manage water costs when I don't have fresh water to irrigate my crops.
1: Peter, on the emergency drought program, California, $700 million. Is that being well spent?
2: I do think it's going to be very well spent. The majority of it will, again, go through the integrated regional water management programs to the local Uh, authorities who know best how to spend that money. And I think that we now have technologies in recycling, in stormwater capture, in efficiency where we're going to really make good use of those to really increase the name of the game is local supply reliability, especially in a year like this one where the State Water Project and the Federal Central Valley Project have decided to provide zero water allocations to their customers. That means local communities are on their own, and I think it really highlights the importance that each community, each region be self-reliant, and recycling,
1: stormwater capture, and efficiency really are the ways to do that. What about more dams? Uh, There's not enough capture. California only has, what, three years of storage? We're in a third year of a drought. Does California need more concrete and steel for capture?
2: You know, dam sites have pretty much all been taken. We all have 10,000 dams here in California alone and about 50,000 nationwide, so there really aren't very many. Uh, There are no on-stream storage spaces left. They have all been taken. In fact, uh, we're now taking dams out uh, in many places to restore, you know, fisheries, which needs to occur. So we're looking to other storage options, particularly groundwater storage, conjunctive use. That's really an area where California can make great strides in reforming groundwater policy to encourage and incentivize more groundwater
1: storage. Los Angeles did some good things, and they're in better shape, partly because they did some groundwater storage. Tim Peckett, Steve Hartmeyer mentioned desalination. Is that part of California's future? I think
0: it probably is. It's very hard to build new desalination capacity, but it depends on how stressed we get as as a region. Um, That can be part of the solution. Um, There are costs to desalination. There are costs to just about every other source of water. I would hope that we push as hard as we can on efficiency before we start pushing on building more projects in steel, but I think it's likely to be a continued part of our future.
2: Peter Yold. Yeah, I wanted to add something about desalination, which is that it's very expensive. So we do have to think about the cost of water. We talked about rising prices. And as we uh, have less water available, we're going to go to more and more expensive new sources of water. It could be desalination. It could be longer and longer pipelines from farther away. All those things are going to drive water prices higher. Uh, desalination in the plants that California is building is going to be over $2,000 per acre foot. Efficiency, uh, like water smarts, is less than $500 per acre foot. So communities can actually reduce their costs by becoming more efficient and pass those savings
1: on to their customers. And from a climate perspective, uh, desalination is very energy intensive, so it's burning some fossil fuels usually to get that clean water supply. Let's turn to... Uh, to audience questions, welcome to Climate One.
2: Hi. Uh, I run a wastewater agency, and you haven't spoken about uh, recycling wastewater, which is becoming more and more uh, common in California as a source and at a cost-effective
1: price compared to diesel certainly. And I wondered if you'd talk a little more about that. Toilet to tap. Who wants that? I'll take you it. So
2: um, wastewater recycling – is actually really important. When I mentioned recycling, I meant to include wastewater recycling. Orange County, for example, is a real leader in this area where they're actually recharging groundwater basins with treated wastewater, and then they pump it back out later. And and they are using it for what they call direct potable reuse, so they can actually use it for indoor uses. And I think it's going to become increasingly important to do that. Uh, you mentioned Israel earlier. Israel um, treats and reuses 85% of its water today. A real leader uh, here in California. I think we reuse maybe less than 2% of our wastewater today. So there's a huge, huge room for improvement in that area. So thanks for that suggestion,
3: Steve Hartmeyer. Yeah, I think in agriculture, one of the probably the biggest success stories in wastewater is down where most of our artichokes come from, down in the the area between Santa Cruz and Monterey, where they teamed up with the urban users of water and figured out how to use wastewater out of treatment plants to do two things. One, to provide irrigation water for, they don't really want me to tell you this, for most of the artichokes that you eat are using wastewater, retreated water. And then two, because they're pushing that water down into the aquifer, it's keeping the salt water out, which is basically meaning the salt water isn't coming in and contaminating the ground, which they would need more water to push it back down into the aquifer. Tim and Pickett, anything to add on,
0: on wastewater? Wastewater reuse is one of the fastest-growing subsectors of the water industry, and um, we've seen successes with it with uh, many of our customers off-taking city partially-treated wastewater and using it for irrigation. In the industrial context, on-site, a lot of sophisticated industrial manufacturers reuse the water in their production processes. That has grown substantially and been very successful.
1: Let's have our next question in Climate One. Welcome. Hello. Thank you all for being with us tonight. You mentioned regulatory context in terms of government support. I wanted to know in terms of
2: legal and otherwise framing issues, do we have either laws on the books now that are still holding back some of these innovations or just the fact that every community has to approve it on its own and doesn't have a common basis? And or for things like San Francisco allowing indirect reuse and graywater use, Are there still laws that we need to reform to allow some of these efficiencies to be brought into a marketable scale?
1: David Pickett?
0: Uh, I'll take a stab at that one. I think that you alluded to one of the big opportunities for improvement there, which is because every town created its own water and wastewater system, the policy governing what you can and cannot sell as a solution, an innovative solution to water needs, varies from town to town, which makes it very hard to have a cookie-cutter solution and to have that approved everywhere. Um, more consistent policy, which could come actually in the form of copycatting successful policy, I think will help quite a bit. I think the second area for real improvement is that what's easy for agencies to manage is stuff, widgets, things. Sell a toilet, we'll give you a rebate on that. Um, a shower head, etc., as opposed to measuring and verifying the outcome of programmatic initiatives to improve water supply and use.
1: That's our next question. Hi, Gary Malusian Thanks for your participation. I've heard quite a few of these talks and done a lot of reading on this and studied it in school as well. I'm curious uh, why we don't ever talk about water law and how that's affected the supply and demand of water in California. Nobody's mentioned that, like like Westlands water. Very uh, arcane area. Who'd like to... Steve Hartmeyer?
3: I think with most things associated with law. It's best left to the lawyers to to debate (laughs) whether it was good, bad, or otherwise. Uh, I guess if you have water rights that were at the turn of the century and you bought ground, you think the water laws are great. I think if you are looking for new water sources, sometimes they seem archaic. Uh, But it's, it's part of the water debate, and it will always be part of the water debate and I don't know if you could solve it now or comment other than it's always going to be part of the debate on water use and pricing and who should use it.
2: Peter Ellis? I'd like to add a little bit there. So we do have water laws from the 19th century. We're looking for new technologies to reform an old industry, and I think that we can reform some laws. We can implement new policies that can encourage and incentivize new technologies like Tamman's Company, Banyan and Water Smart Software, and the many others that we've talked about today where we're looking for agricultural users, urban water districts, municipalities, to try out new technologies, to create an environment where they can try out new things uh, in a conservative environment, a conservative culture. I think that's really important for us to address um, 21st century problems with
1: 21st century technologies. But it sounds like it's a very decentralized system, so that kind of change is going to have to happen at, at the local level. I've had... Uh, state senators here before, uh, Republicans and Democrats, who said that water rights is sort of beyond the legislature. Sacramento can't get at it because it is at that local level. A lot of water agencies are not under the California Public Utilities Commission. They can't get at it. Is that fair and accurate, that it has to happen at the local level? There's nothing that can happen statewide from Sacramento. Uh,
2: I disagree. I think there's a lot that the state can do, actually. In fact. you know Steinberg from Sacramento and the governor just signed this law, which is it is about money, it's seven hundred million dollars, but it also is about policy change. There's also talk of uh, another water bond, and again, it's not just about money, but we can actually create policy change in a good way to create those incentives for new technology. And I think it's really important that that we all get behind that.
1: Let's talk about that water bond before we go to the next question. Some say six, some say eleven billion dollars. and Peckett, uh, is that a good thing? Will it pass? What's going to be in it? I don't know if it will pass. Um, And I think that one of the most hopeful signs I've seen
0: around water bond measures actually came out of a report between Ceres and J.P. Morgan, which looked at bond pricing in the municipal markets and water supply and infrastructure risk and essentially suggested that investors should start pricing bonds in part based on water supplies and the quality of the water systems. And so I do think that bonds can serve as a signal to the financial and capital markets and then affect better water management um, as a general matter.
1: Steve Hartmeyer, do your agricultural customers want a water bond on the uh, state
3: ballot in November? Do they think that's going to be helpful to uh, the agricultural industry in the state? I haven't taken a poll of, the, of our customers to say whether or not they want a bond. I think anything that addresses the water needs of California, they would support it. Even $11 billion? If it supports it, they would. The question I would ask is, Is is the state of California ready to support a bond? And I'm not sure that they are.
1: It's not clear yet. Peter
3: Yelis, any thoughts on a water bond?
2: Well, I think we never want to waste a crisis, and we're in one today. And the bond and the urgency bill that the governor has signed are the the best ways for the state to address it. I think there's a lot of good things uh, in the the current versions of the bond. There are many. Uh, And I think it's important that we put – it's the best way for us to prioritize um, what's important to our state. And water is what makes our state go. And it's clear that in today's um, climate, and today's infrastructure, it's insufficient for us to maintain our way of life. We have water rationing today. We have 17 cities that are planning to run out of water in the next 90 days. Things have to change. I think the state needs to take take the lead um, in showing communities and regions the way to innovate and provide uh, new ways of doing business and new technologies to innovate.
1: Peter Yellows is CEO of WaterSmart. We're talking about water and technology at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to a podcast of this and other Climate One programs in iTunes. Let's have our next question. Welcome. I'd uh, like to hear more details about the consumer pricing of water. Uh, specifically, where do you draw the line in distinguishing basic cost versus discretionary price? Is the price of water contingent upon climate um, and geography. So, for example, is the basic price of water going to be different for San Francisco versus Chicago or versus San Francisco versus the desert? Uh, and so what are those things that are going to determine what that line is between the basic price and the discretionary price and what volume is going to be offered in, in, in where that is in terms of basic pricing? It's politically charged. To some people, a lawn might be wasteful, discretionary. To others, a lawn might be sort of a deeply held value, something that they've got to have. Peter Yolis?
2: Well, I think there are a couple components to water pricing. The first is what, how has your community invested in water infrastructure in the past? The way they do that is to issue bonds. They pay it off over 30 years, just like you would your home. And so the prices today often reflect the previous investments that your city or water district has made. The second component is what the water rate structure is that they have applied on how to pay back uh, and to run their operating costs. So you can have uniform rates or you can have these increasing tiered rates. Where those tiers are, where they're set, determines whether people have lifeline rights for
0: indoor usage.
1: We're entering a situation where we're about to have water rationing, and if there's percentage cuts, the people who've been water efficient are going to be punished, whereas the people who've been lavish with their water, they got got some cushion. They can afford to cut by 20% because they haven't been as
3: miserly, uh, as, as uh, economic with their water. Steve Hartmeyer, I, I think, unfortunately, that's somewhat of a harsh reality. A lot of people in agriculture have seen that where they've, they've, they went – to drip irrigations or or subsurface irrigations, and all of a sudden they had to cut their water use. Uh, I think, you know, unfortunately that... good guys get punished. A lot of times that's that's the reality of it. The good guys do get punished because they are a little bit more efficient. Uh, On the other side, because they're more efficient, they're cutting their costs dramatically, which means they should be receiving on the other side. But I think unless you have a way of measuring, whether it's a homeowner or an agriculture, of saying you've been more efficient going forward, so we're not going to hurt you as much, uh, then then the model would be more something than what they were discussing about earlier. For this area or this set, this is what you should be using, and anything above that uh, you're going to pay more for, which then wouldn't penalize the person who's already been saved.
1: Peter Yulis, a lot of people in charge of water agencies are politically elected, and perhaps they have political ambitions, changing water is fraught with political uh, peril.
2: That's true. In effect, there is uh, there are limitations on, on the types of rate changes that a publicly elected board's can do, and it's called Prop 218. You have to actually go out to a ballot initiative to change rate structures uh, many times. Uh, So, what public elected boards and, and council people are looking for is ways to reduce the cost and don't increase rates so fast. Now, what is actually happening is that water rates are rising much faster than any other utility today. In fact, water rates since 1980 have risen at about one and a half times the rate of electricity. So while you may not think of water as very expensive today, it's becoming more expensive, and you'll see that be reflected in rates. And our public officials are looking for ways to reduce the rate of increase of those water costs. The best way to do that is um, to do more water efficiency, to keep the cost down instead of building more and more expensive uh, water supply projects.
1: But isn't a lot of that cost increase because the water infrastructure in this country, like our bridges and a lot of other things, are antiquated. We've lot of deferred maintenance, so it's the you know, chickens coming home to roost. We're paying for all this stuff. We've been kind of driving that car until 200,000 miles, and now it's just dying out on us.
2: That's right. There's uh, The amount of deferred maintenance on our water system in the United States is estimated to be between $500 billion and $1 trillion over the next 30 years. So there's really no end in sight to water rate increases. The average uh, water rate increase per year over the last 20 years is between 7 and 10% that's expected to increase
1: indefinitely. So it's imperative that we look for new, uh, cost-effective ways to provide water. And Tam and Peckett, with uh, supply shocks, uh, climate change driving water stress, both too much water and and not enough water, our water systems are going to be tested in a way they've never been tested before, and they're not ready,
0: or are they ready? They're not ready. That that really is deferred maintenance CapEx. The gap is not closing as fast as, every year that gap keeps getting pushed forward with minimal spending, um, I think there are a couple of encouraging things around that. The first is that an entire industry has sprung up called trenchless technology, which really is around smart infrastructure and repairing our broken roots of our system with a minimal cost and minimal disruption. Uh, And the second is that water agencies have gotten smart and creative about creating a little bit of a dichotomy between stated rate increases and the actual increases on the rates paid by large users. Uh, As an example, one of our customers wanted to know in a city how much their rates were projected to go up next year, and the stated rate increase in that city was 6%, and the effective rate increase that they were going to pay based on their meter sizes, the type of user that they were, et cetera, was 24%. Wow.
1: Wow. So what's, we've got a couple minutes left here. Uh, quickly, what do we, can we expect the rest of this year, this cycle? Uh, we've had some rain recently. Maybe the drought's not as bad. What's, what's your crystal ball for the rest of this, uh, this, this water year, Tam and Peckett? I think that
0: there will be enough attention to spur more interest, to spur more financing and entrepreneurship. And talks like this, events like some of those that are going on in Silicon Valley, will hopefully lead to a little bit of a catalyst for some more innovators coming in with solutions other than just building new steel and raising water prices.
1: Steve Hartmeyer, going to have fundamental change
3: in the way water is managed in the Central Valley as a result of this drought? I I, I it depends, i didn't fundamental, but I think there's already a rapid change going on, and it will just be enhanced and sped up, because right now there's a system that, that isn't sustainable. For, for agriculture right now in the Central Valley, or whether it's any water use and irrigation, whether it's ag, urban, golf courses, the Olympic club down the street, if they want to water their golf courses, et cetera, uh, they're, they're really – it's not a sustainable system we have now. What the drought has done is raise the awareness. I think somebody mentioned earlier that all of a sudden it's brought it to the forefront. And, and I don't I don't see that changing. I think what it'll do is it'll make change occur faster, whether it's investment in venture capital, new technologies, or just growers figuring out how they can farm their last half the crop that they normally would do.
1: Peter Yulis, are we going to go back to our old ways? If we get a bunch of rain, we're going to go, ah, it's over, we can go back, forget about it. I don't think so. I think we're in a new era, and I think we all realize it. And I think we're going to have to
2: change our policies and reinvest, apply new technologies, look to Silicon Valley for new solutions like software, like some of these companies that we're talking about today, um, in addition, I think one, I want to bring up you know one other area that we haven't talked about today, which is the environment. And I serve on the board of the Scott River Water Trust, um, and I just heard today that the snowpack uh, today up in the Klamath River Basin is just 8% of normal. 8%. So what does that mean for our, our salmon fisheries, um, for our farmers in that area? Uh, it means we're in a longer-term drought. We're going to have drought uh, this summer. It'll probably be multi-year one, and I think that uh, we all know we're we're in a new normal, and we'll have to
1: make the changes we talked about here today. I want to end by asking each of you how you manage your own personal water and carbon footprint, starting with Steve Hartmeyer.
3: <laughs> I see a water bill. I have four sons, and one thing my carbon footprint has done is dropped dramatically as they've gone away to college. <laughs> You've exported your carbon. Yeah, okay. I, I moved it I moved it somewhere else. Off your balance sheet, yeah. Well, actually, they didn't take a car with them, so I know I dramatically reduced it because they're commuting. Uh, but, no, I think my personal carbon footprint every month, uh, I see an electrical bill. And with four boys, I've watched it for years to see whether it would go up or down. And the same, my carbon footprint with water. In the area I live, they report water use month by month. And I found out, and maybe I should let him talk to one of you guys about metering. Because I found out once when I called them, why did my water go up when I still haven't turned my irrigation on? And they said, well, we sort of average it on a month-to-month. We only read it every two or three months. So, you know, they had a data reporting system that was flawed to begin with. But I think everybody looks at carbon footprint right now, and especially if you have kids in college and the next generation coming up. If you don't look at it, they raise your awareness very rapidly about what impact you're having on the environment.
1: Tannen, take it quickly, your own water and carbon. Uh, well, a couple
0: months ago, my wife gave me grief about our water bill, so I'm currently looking into solutions to reduce it.
1: <laughs> it took that. Okay, all right.
0: <laughs> Peter Yolis?
2: Well, uh, since we purchased our home uh, 13 years ago, we've been reducing our water use uh, every year. In fact, we started off in uh, 2001 with a uh, total water use of 300,000 gallons, and last year it was 100,000 gallons. I think. Anyone with a home can do uh, just as much to help reduce their water use and the embedded energy in their water use, like the hot water we use at home, uh, can help reduce our our carbon emissions and footprint, too.
1: We have to end it there. Our thanks to uh, Peter Yola, CEO of WaterSmart, Tam and Peckett, CEO of Banyan Water, and Steve Hartmeyer, CEO of MOASIS. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for coming to Climate One today to listen to a podcast of this and other programs in iTunes. Thanks for coming. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd, and editor is Annie Chelsea. Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.